This week on the Sport Blokes. This week catches win matches as we wrap up the fifth Ashes test and the series. Piers Morgan's up to it again. The Oval's not far from Wimbledon, so new balls please. And Bon Voyage, <laughs> Stuart Broad. Oh, lots of fun again, Stewie. Let's go. It's 6.30 on Wednesday, the 2nd of August, 2023. So here we are. After 46 days, even longer when you consider the World Test Championship, and five tests, England have won the moral ashes, infinity nil. Australia have retained the real ashes. And the actual series ends, much like a true compromise with both sides feeling unsatisfied, at two all, as was demonstrated in a weird post-series presentation ceremony. But don't worry, everyone's a loser too. Australia lost 10 World Test Championship points for slow over eights, and England lost 19 for the same infraction. So, Shuey, does that mean we win for losing less? Uh, oh, it's a very good question. First of all, I have to applaud as well them winning the Moral Ashes Infinity Nil. That is sensational. <laughs> oh, one of, the, one of the great Moral Ashes of our time. Absolutely, it was. Yeah, it's, it's a very good question you raise. It is actually hard to figure out if anyone really won these Ashes. I mean, as you say, a draw on the scoreboard, Everyone kind of feels a little bit dirty. It's just, I don't know, just something about them. Like, I enjoyed them, but at the same time, I saw a video on YouTube today of somebody talking about it, and they said, honestly, I loved every ball of it, but I'm so glad it's over. <laughs> well, that's interesting, because I'm the opposite. I'm having withdrawals already. Obviously, we've had the six tests with the World Test Championship, so we've had several months or a couple of months of lots of cricket, and over here in the West, uh, Stumps is at one thirty, and I happy to stay up till stumps every night so no i'm already suffering withdrawals oh by the way while we're looking at scoreboards the post-match drinks have been lost nil all as well now we recorded our christmas in july episode last night that's an edit still in progress depending on how we go tonight i might even release that after i release this one which might be a bit shorter and easier once again you need to run off to another game of volleyball stewie so no opening bounce here we've had more than 24 hours to reflect and catch our breath but before we do get stuck into the ashes i have to ask how did your head coaching debut go on the weekend? Hopefully you didn't punch any walls or break any phones. Well, the walls were a long way away. The interesting thing about coaching at a year one level is the coaches are actually on the field trying to kind of maintain some semblance of order. It's what, a the little six, bit six, like six? a mini- Well, yeah, it's actually, it's a, it's a four, four, four there. (laughs) So it's a little bit shorter, thankfully, but uh, yeah, look, I was a smidgen tired afterwards running up and down that field a few times was not in the script at all, Uh, Uh, but it was, it was good fun. I mean, the team that we played was a year older. They absolutely blew us off the park in the first quarter. I'm walking up going, what do I say to these kids? How do I stem the bleeding? And they just kind of figured it out, Uh, kicked four goals, which was more than I was expecting few of them got in there, really gave it a good go. One kid got his fingers stepped on. Yeah. It was it was a very, yeah, very entertaining event. Ah, very good to hear. Very good to hear. So obviously in the AFL, they have the phone and the phone down to the bench. I can't help but think in Auskick, is it like the uh, Flintstones phone on, on the Simpsons? Yes. Yeah, but never <laughs> do. I like talking to you. Do you. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty much like that. Anyway, good to hear and uh, look forward to hearing more coaching stories over the journey. So Peter Layla said recently on Cricket Etc. that the last day of the last match was a microcosm of the entire series. Thoughts? In terms of it being like a roller coaster up and down a little bit, you know, no team kind of getting too far ahead or too far behind. Is that kind of what you mean? Yeah, I think in many ways. And and I think in, in some other ways, like he didn't mention this, but kind of reflecting on, and one of the good things about the rain break was that I actually got to see the end of the test match that 
I had to rely on quick info refreshes while I was sitting in my hotel in Koh Samui. <laughs> so it was good to actually see, I think, oh, probably the last, oh, it's a pretty lengthy rain break. So it was probably, I probably saw the last 150 runs or something. So I actually got to, to see the end of that match, which was great. But the Lords match was a massive target that was nearly chased down. Okay, we didn't have a Ben Stokes this time for Australia scoring a 155 odd. But again, it was a massive total that was nearly chased down. And wow, my God, we got to dare to dream on a couple of occasions, didn't we? We did, yeah. And look, we'll talk about the rain delays in a minute because, look, there are some, I guess, some things that maybe the English whinged about in the fourth test that we kind of feel like we have a right to whinge about from the fifth. Uh, it was, it was, it was a real sort of seesawing battle. It seemed like at one point, you know, certainly after the second innings for England, it kind of felt like it was all doom and gloom. I don't think many people gave us a chance. And then, uh, yeah, all of a sudden at none for 136 at stumps, you're thinking, oh, sure, a sneaky chance here. here we oh, go. yeah. I had lots of hope at that point. I thought I thought we were going to win at that point. I'm not going to lie. Now, maybe I was overconfident, but, uh, but I really did. Yeah. Oh, I was say, it was just little bits and pieces. And again, you know, this is one of these tests. We spoke about it, I guess, in one of the previous episodes where – Sometimes it was just those little mistakes, you know, the team that maybe made less mistakes or the team that adjusted slightly better was the team that came out on top in each match. I agree with that. If we don't drop five catches now, it's more like four and a half. I thought the Smitty was what more of a half chance. But if we don't drop, well, even if we take one of those five, <laughs> maybe it's a totally different thing. But this is the thing, isn't it? There's so much butterfly effect stuff and and it's really hard to kind of mine it down to one single moment but boy like you said we do have some uh, reasons to be a little bit annoyed to say the least well Nathan, let's just quickly talk about the drop catches because obviously a lot of a lot of that stuff is on day one and i've actually gone through and had a look at what each of those five batters were on when they were dropped and the extra runs that they made it is kind of interesting reading so david warner drops ben duckett on 30 he makes another 11 Steve Smith dropped Zach Crawley on 11. He made another 22, I think it was. No, sorry, he made another 11, I should say. Uh, tough chance, but it is Smitty. You kind of expect him to take those. Yeah, that might have been the half one I'm thinking of. Yeah, four and a half. Obviously, the big one, Alex Carey dropping Harry Brook on five. He goes on to make another 80. Yes. Mitch Marsh drops Mark Wood on 19. He makes another 17. And then Todd Murphy, I, I say dropped. I don't think he even really saw the ball coming when Chris Wokes hit it. But Wokes is on 25, makes another 11. Those five catches cost Australia 130 runs. Yep, and when the margin's 49, and again, it's butterfly effect stuff. Everything changes with every new situation. But uh, yeah, it's hard not to rue those ones, isn't it? And I've got to say, so, some uncharacteristic Steve Smith. Like he, like he wasn't, obviously he scored a fair few runs in that last test. No tons, but he, he scored some runs. But I don't know, maybe, maybe he's slightly dropped a level and and maybe he's on the decline because I just, I don't know. I thought that there were a couple of times when he made some poor decisions throughout the, the series uh, and it really hurt us, didn't it? So some uncharacteristic stuff, but yeah, I, I guess we'll focus on this fifth test, won't we? Yeah. And the thing with Smith is I guess we've just been so blessed over the years You know, he gets to 50 or 60 and you just expect him to go on and make a big ton you you've seen him make those double tons previously and you sort of think all right he's on for something 150 plus and he could absolutely take the game away from England but he's 34 now i mean he's not as young as he was you know a few years back and all of a sudden yeah time does catch up and it makes that sandpaper suspension even worse doesn't it because he really was 
at the height of his powers and we were kind of robbed of a, a, a year of, of his peak, really. But actions have consequences. So there we go. Well, they do in Australia. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, we talked about Harmon Preet Kaur too, smashing down those stumps. Like if that had been Steve Smith or Davey Warner, they, they would have been rolling out the gallows, let alone asking for ridiculous suspensions. Mm, yeah, I can hear the crowd. I can just hear it in my head. <sighs> and that's the other interesting thing from this whole Ashes, and, and it has been spoken about, and it's probably something that's been observed before. I guess maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm a bit more aware of it because of social media or maybe things have changed in this post-COVID world. I don't know what it is, but it's really interesting because England are glass half full and don't seem to want to criticise their own at all. And Australia are glass half empty and basically after Pat Cummins has captained us to a World Test Championship win and a Ashes retention, people were calling for his head. <laughs> so it's really interesting the the kind of the dynamics between the two countries and how we view and how we how we handle things. We're so glass half empty. By that stage, we're already in the line trying to get another drink. <laughs> exactly. Yes. It yeah. is interesting. We will we'll talk a little bit about, I guess, some of the fallout because Pat Cummins is not the only one who I guess has had his head put in the guillotine and it'll be very interesting to see what the next 12 months looks like and even what the the Aussie summer looks like with the Pakistan series coming up in sort of December, January. Well, we need a new opener soon and I'm not convinced that Renshaw is the man. So yeah, that's going to be interesting. It's good that uh, Warner and Kawaja agreed not to retire at the same time so as to not leave us with two openers. That would be pretty devastating. So, I I mean, look, the way that Kawaja's going, he could probably play for another few years. Yeah, you'd think so. I mean, certainly, I don't think his fielding's got any better or worse, which is, I guess, one of the things that can decline a little bit. I remember very distinctly one of the things you said after that Dave Warner catch was something like, bloody hell, Davey, I've been you know, supporting you because of the, the fielding and the, yes. the slips and you do this, <laughs> like, Jesus. Oh, yes, it's true. It's true. Luckily, he, uh, as you say, it was only 11 extra runs. And yeah, God, he looked more like, his fingers were more tape than fingers, weren't they? There was so much tape yeah. on him. But here, here's a stat about Davey Warner while we're talking about him. So in the end, he was 11th for both runs and averages for players that played all five tests. He had 285 at 28.5. So look, he didn't set the world alight, but he did do his job. And I'm not convinced that a Renshaw or, or someone like that would, or Harris, for example, would have done any better. No, and I think the big one that is starting to gain maybe just a smidge of, I guess, momentum is Cameron Bancroft. Yeah, well, hey, that's could be waiting in the wings. You never know. Look, he's had a really, really great few years in terms of the Sheffield Shield, in terms of doing a little bit of stuff in county cricket. We know he is an absolute world-class fielder. He's one of these guys that we all very, very quickly forget about as the collateral damage of the whole Sandpaper Gate thing. And he is a great player. Well, he was most negatively affected in many ways. So yeah, if he keeps piling on the runs here at the Wacker in WA, anything can happen. And you know, the other big thing as well is just that left-right combination. Because we saw this in the Ashes, someone like a Stuart Broad, uh, Mark Wood, in all of these sort of mid to quick bowlers were looking at coming around the stumps and sort of hitting that that footmark. And all of a sudden, you know, the ball's kind of hooping away towards the slips cordon. And there were a lot of those edges, a lot of those LBWs were sort of brought in and we couldn't really do anything about it. Whereas if you have that left-right combination, 
it does make it a little bit more difficult. The field has to change every time there's a single. Not that we did a very good job of that throughout the entire series, but uh, it's up a and big down. Sometimes yeah, we did. It's a big difference. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, you're absolutely right. It's a very good point. It's, it's a really good way to open an innings. So, Nath, one of the really big things to come out of this fifth test is the multiple rain delays. Now, obviously, we had the incredibly large one in Manchester that saw, what, a day and a half washed out completely. And in this one, we saw two different rain delays. So at the end of the fourth day, we lost quite a bit of time with Australia none for 136. Warner and Kawaja going, I'd say, fairly beautifully. Oh, no doubt. Definitely. Uh, if, if there's no rain delay there, we're probably only chasing 60 or 70 on the final day. Maybe we finish, well, we probably finish it that day. Yeah, well, certainly get fairly close. Yeah, maybe like none for 250 and 60, all going well. And then they come back the next day. Warner and Kawaja gone for only another five runs to the total, so not a great start. And then a, a third wicket gone not too long after that. Then we see a little bit of a counter from Smith and Head. So they, they basically get the score up to three for 238. They move the score along nicely. They're playing a little bit more positively. And then we get the second rain delay. Oh, and this is where I talk about the ebbs and flow of hope. Because when Smitty and Head would go on a right, Head was going at a run a ball at one point. And incidentally, the run rate, the two teams, 4.6 for England and 3.2 for Australia, basically across the series. But you start to hope again, don't you? You start to think, oh, well, hopefully if this rain delay doesn't go for too long, we might still win this. Well, you do. And look, it's no secret that I'm a little bit superstitious when it comes to things. If wickets aren't falling, I, no matter how sore my backside or my legs get or my back, I will stay in the same position if it's standing, sitting, whatever. And throughout the first part of our innings, so that entire end of day four, I did not move from my spot on the couch and we did not lose a wicket. I was a little bit slow getting the feed on on day two. We managed to lose the three wickets and I was like, oh shit, sorry boys, forgot to turn it on. And then we batted <laughs> yeah, right through to that point where even just after the, the second break, three for 264, as I say. So at that point, I'm thinking, all right, we're invincible. As long as I'm watching and I don't move, we'll finish this thing three down. But obviously we know what happened from there. We go on to lose seven for 70 and more importantly, four for 11. And at that yeah, point, yeah, five know, for it, thirty and less than ten overs as well. So yeah, yeah it, not good reading. It just takes takes the fight out of a team. You know, if you lose four for eleven, and all of a sudden you go from needing what about one hundred and twenty odd to sort of needing still about a hundred and five, but you've only got three wickets left now, it, it does absolutely kill it. And as we've said, when both of those rain delays happened, we had all the momentum. We had two partnerships that were going well. They were scoring runs, turning the strike over. As I said, we haven't done that well all series. And it sort of begs the question, were those two rain delays more impactful to the series than the one in Manchester? Uh, maybe not more, because obviously England would have definitely won Manchester no matter what. But maybe as much as... And, and the other thing that the, the long break allowed was for the English bowlers to recharge their batteries because one of the things, okay, we didn't bat well in that first innings. We Well, as far as the run rate was concerned and Marnus's uh, knock particularly, or if you can even call it a knock, was one of the kind of real sticking points there. But what that did allow was at least they bowled over 100 overs and we so we got a bit of wear and tear into their body. And I think it was showing. I do think it was showing by the end of day four, which helped us to amount the runs amass the runs that we did but the problem was with that hour and a half break or whatever it was they were able to to rest and recoup and yeah i do i think it went a long way to helping them win but of course the other thing was the ball yeah and, and look just quickly before we get onto the ball the reason i asked that question is if you look at it whilst the rain delay did cost england a win they still got a draw out of it whereas i really feel like these two rain delays cost us all the momentum and potentially a win 
instead of getting a draw, we get a loss. And so it kind of, instead of going down as a 3-1 Australia series win, it goes down 2 all. So they're just mentally, it kind of means something. And you could see how excited England were to get a 2 all draw and how much they loved sticking it to us that they didn't actually concede a series win, even though the urn is coming back to Australia. Well, this is the funny thing, and this is the glass half full, half empty thing, isn't it? Because we're all like, oh, two all sucks, and they're all celebrating. But I think also the context of how the match has unfolded as well. So obviously we won the first two, and then it started to go a little bit downhill from there. So they did have all the momentum at the end. The English attack felt like it did have a bit more variety and discipline throughout the series. Uh, they made some silly batting decisions at times, but their batters looked better too. And, and that's outlined in the fact that they had five blokes average over 50, whereas we only had two which was Marsh and Uzi, and that was with the benefit of rounding up. And, of course, Marsh only played three matches as well. Speaking of three matches, Chris Wokes was player of the series in just three matches, and he was actually very deserving, wasn't he? He was huge. Yeah, can't argue with that. I mean, obviously made key runs, helped that tail wag a little bit in certain instances where it kind of felt like we might be able to roll England relatively cheaply, and all of a sudden we saw him and Wood and other guys, you know, just kind of holding down an end and, and doing the right thing. So, yeah, look, I've got no problems with that. He bowled spectacularly as well. You know, for a guy who doesn't sort of get up to that sort of low to mid-90s that consistently, I think he he bowled spectacularly. Really great lines. The sort of lines and lengths that you need on those pitches. Now, speaking of bowling well, are you willing to offer an apology to Moen Ali? Why? Oh, he bowled very well on that final day. On a dud, like, basically could barely walk. He was very oh, important. Look, I, I give him props for going out there and doing what he did. I still, honestly, and and look, it might be an unpopular opinion. I don't rate him. I don't rate him as, no matter what he's done, I know he's got all the wickets and I can hear Woody screaming through, <laughs> through his phone. <laughs> yes, I know he's got a lot of wickets or a couple of hundred anyway, which is a couple of hundred more than I've got. But I just, I still don't think that he should have been able to take as many wickets as he did. There were a couple of times when a ball just absolutely burst off, whether it be the seam or a crack, but uh, I don't know. He's He bowled better than I expected he would, but he still bowls enough pies that he sh we should have been putting him away a bit more. Anyway, that's just my thoughts. No, fair enough. I, I, I thought he bowled very well in that final day and was a key, key part of the win. Well, so he should be. He's a spinner on day five. Like, he yeah, should oh, be. yeah, true, true, true. So, but he's injured yeah, too, well, so... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, absolutely, absolutely. And look, that's the big thing. I will absolutely put my hand up and applaud him for going out and doing what he did and fielding as well. That was the big thing. He very easily could have said, look, I'm not going to be bowling for a little bit. I'm going to just go and sit down and, you know, Dan Lawrence or one of these other guys could come in. But, but he didn't. And I respect that. And just quickly as well, I do want to mention one other thing that it seems to have almost been forgot about in this whole thing. We were absolutely dominating to the point well, not, maybe not dominating, but we were ahead in both of the first two and doing quite well in that third test at the point that Nathan Lyon oh, basically yeah. went down. That, yeah, that's yeah. the turning point in the series. It's huge. Like I said, it's it's close to McGrath in 05. And maybe now with the benefit of hindsight, maybe it's as bad as McGrath going down in 05. Yep, agreed. Anyway, not going to sit there and piss and moan because they can say the same thing. They were missing their uh, their West Indian fast bowler. <laughs> and Jack Leach and, and Moeen was was underdone and, and Wood was underdone. I mean, Wood nearly getting up to 100 miles per hour on a dud heel. He was magnificent. I'm a massive fan of Mark Wood. He's oh, a great player. I love him. That was why, without knowing he was injured, why I was screaming from the start. Like, why the fuck is he not bowling? He yeah. is the most dangerous. You could see, as soon as he came in, the very first pill that he's throwing down there, 
your Kawaja, Smith, Labashain, you can just see that they're cramped for time and space, That just that little bit quicker onto the bat, and it does. It makes a big difference. So let's talk about that pill. He didn't come in until the 35th over, which I was amazed at, but there's a bit more, I guess, water under the bridge now. So there are a couple of things there. One, I think, was partly the injury, and it was about the timing. The elephant in the room, Shui. Let's talk about the ball. Yeah. So obviously very, very late on day four. As I said, the Aussies going fairly well, zero wickets down, well into the hundreds. And just towards the end of play before that first rain delay, Mark Wood comes in, hits Kawaja in the head with a bouncer and apparently knocked the shape out of the ball. And we see two of our absolute favorites, Joel Wilson and Kumar Damasena. They come in and they change the ball, which at that stage was, I don't know, 40 overs. I want to say the 37th around okay. there. So, so it's getting close to that 40 over mark. And they bring one in that looks like it doesn't... I think they said it was eight overs. You could still see all the writing on it. It was red, like super red. Ridiculous. The fact you could see the writing. I mean, Joel Wilson didn't even take his fucking sunglasses off. Honestly, like I said on our Christmas in July episode, which may come out after this, that bloke lives in standby and he gets awoken with a, a shout or something and then he guesses. He's a terrible umpire and he should not get another international gig. It's disgraceful. And look, it's no surprise that as soon as that ball comes in, it starts hooping around corners. We know what happens with English bowlers and a new Duke. Like, it swings like a motherfucker. And you can see those last 11 balls of the day were very, very difficult. They managed to get through it. But I've got two really big questions, Nate. So the first well, I have one... To, I have to pick you up there first, Shuey. It didn't swing like a motherfucker. It swung like a dad with a key in a bowl in a 70s party. Oh, well, there you go. Eating fondue and, uh, yeah, listening to Marvin Gaye. Yes, it did. It swung all over the place. Yes. Now, my my first question I've already asked, because the the first question was going to be kind of rhetorical. How many balls were bowled after that? And we know it was 11. It was one over and five deliveries. And Kawaja was already starting to question it. Like, he said that it was the hardest ball he'd faced in the entire series, and he'd know pretty well because he's an opener and faced over 1,100 balls in the entire series. Yeah, probably more than anyone without looking at the stats. The second question I've got, though, which I think is one that really hasn't been asked, or certainly I haven't seen it anywhere. As soon as Stumps was called on day four, why could they not use that time overnight to procure a ball that resembled the old one? Like, Are they saying that there's not a single cricket ball in London close to the original ball? This is this is a great question, Shui. I haven't heard it anywhere either, and I've listened to a few podcasts today. You're spot on. You're absolutely spot on. And what makes it worse is that when Kawaja queried it with Wilson and Damasena, I think it was with Wilson, he apparently said, oh, well, there was nothing else in the box. And so I heard on the Grandstand Cricket podcast today, Ed Cowan was like, well, if there's no other ball in the box, don't fucking change it. You know what I mean? There's no way that ball should have come in. And what's also interesting is that they didn't, so they could have changed it at the 80 over mark. They didn't change it until the 105th over mark. And of course, that's because it was basically a new ball. So they got an extra 25 overs out of it. It's just interesting. And as I say, I'm actually really surprised that nobody has questioned it. We saw some incredible insight from a number of ex-players. And this is the one thing that, yeah, just hasn't really come up is like, you've got so much time for the time they call end of play at what, six or seven o'clock at night. You've basically got about 15 hours and you, you honestly cannot tell me that there is not a single ball in a city the size of London that is eight to 10 overs old. Like there has to be hundreds of the things sitting out there and they just could not get one. All I can think is maybe there's a rule that says they can't, but uh, yeah, no, it's a really great question, Stewie. Yeah. I mean, if there is a rule that says you can't, then fair enough, but it's a bloody stupid rule because 
all of a sudden you've got a team. And look, I would be saying the exact same thing if this happened the other way around. I can promise you that. If we had been given a, a new pill, it'd be like, oh, wow, that's pretty good luck, but it doesn't really seem that fair. Like, Absolutely. What, we would have what, said it was a hollow victory. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, Shuey, you might be surprised to hear this, but I shortlisted Stuart Broad on the naughty and nice list for our Christmas in July episode. Now, we ran out of time, so we didn't include it, and that was partly because we we're going to talk about him today as well. His last ball was a wicket. His last shot was a six. He's gone out on top in just about every way imaginable. Over 600 career test wickets achieved in this series. Stuart Broad, hats off. I actually kind of liked the pantomime by the end. I'll be honest. Oh, yeah. There's no two. And look, we've admitted this with a number of different sports. The older we get, the more we can separate us as a fan of a team and us as a fan of players and what people are capable of doing. And look, that 8 for 15 that he had at Trent Bridge way back when still probably goes down as the most amazing spell I've seen live. Obviously, there's better ones, the, the Ambrose 7 for 1, et cetera, but that thing yeah. just, you know, yeah, yeah, he had it talking. So, yes, absolutely. I think he has uh, certainly gone up a couple of pegs in most people's opinions. Look, he'll still go down as a, a bit of a flog for certain things, but I think we can all appreciate that. And, yeah couple of really, really key things you've said. Last ball for six. Only West Indian Wayne Daniel in 1984 has done that, which is very, very impressive. And there's a fairly short list. I don't have the exact list of players to take a wicket with their final ball. I will say this, though. Glenn McGrath, we have to bring it back to Aussies, took a wicket off his final ball in Test cricket, knocking over Jimmy Anderson in 2006-07 in the Ashes. His last T20 international delivery got rid of Paul Collingwood in a one-off ODI that England won by about 100 runs. And his last ODI delivery he bowled in Australia removed Paul Nixon in the second final of the Combank series. And he got rid of Russell Arnold with the second last ball he bowled at the 2007 World Cup final that we were at. So still a long way short of how good Pidge McGraw was. Good research there. Very good. I like it. And Jimmy Anderson, you mentioned, he's the one that should be retiring. He did nothing. Yes. Yeah, he did nothing. That's right. And Moeen Ali as well. We've obviously got to give props to him as much as I give him shit. And as much as I, I still think he's a bit overrated, he did still have a very, very good quality career number of runs, a number of wickets, an absolute staple of that English side for a number of years. I do have a couple of other ones just quickly I want to mention as well. Uh, Matai Murlitharin now, we know there's an asterisk next to these because most of them are no balls, but he did take his 800th <laughs> wicket with his last ever test delivery. And he also had a wicket with his last ODI delivery at home in the semifinals of the 2011 World Cup, getting rid of one Scott Styrus. And I do remember Ross Taylor picking up a wicket with the last ball of his career, getting rid of Ebadot Hussain of Bangladesh. So there have been some really cool stories like that. And I'm, as I always bring up, I'm less inclined to be mean to Mattia because he was so nice to me at the aforementioned Cricket World Cup. No, sorry, that was the 2015 one, wasn't it? Uh, it was, yeah. No, 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 it was 07 when he no, signed my no, ticket. it was 07, yeah. Yeah, when he signed my ticket on the boundary there. So, so yes, yeah. But uh, yeah, a lot of wickets against Zimbabwe, just quietly. But look, going back to Stuart Broad, circling back, there's no two ways about it. We know, obviously, there's a lot of that stuff about he's a much better bowler in English conditions. He didn't do quite as well when he came down to Australia. But look, he has been around for a long time. He's taken a lot of wickets. He's led a few rearguard actions as well. He's he certainly scored some very frustrating runs over the years. And definitely hat goes off to him. Amen. No, great career and great way to go out. Nath, just quickly before we start looking at the fallout from this series. Now, Nath, one of the other stats I did want to quickly talk about before we get into the fallout side of things is the Maidens. It's kind of been talked about very briefly, but not as much as, I guess, 
you know, probably should have been. And we saw a number of times there were points made about the fact that England were rotating the strike. It was very difficult for the bowlers to kind of get set bowling to the same player for four, five, six deliveries in a row. And I just kind of wanted to outline this because I've gone back and looked at all of the tests and outlined exactly how many maidens were bowled in these. So the first test, Australia bowled 144.2 overs. Only eight of those were maidens. Wow. Not, not great. England, I know I didn't actually take a note of how many uh, overs England bowled, but look, for the most part, it would have been less um, with the exception of the third test, um, which was an absolute smashing. But England bowled 39 maiden overs in that first test. So they were plus 31 in maidens in that first test. Second test, Australia bowls 12 out of 157.5 overs as maidens. England bowled 45, so plus wow. 33. Third test, six for Australia, 102.3 overs. England 16, plus 10. In the fourth test, Australia bowled just three maidens out of 107.4 overs. Shit. England bowled 29, so plus 26. And in the fifth and final, five for Australia out of 136.3 overs. England 42, plus 37. That is a total for the series. Australia, 34 maidens. England, 171, plus 137. Wow. England bowled more maidens, more maidens in the fifth test than Australia bowled all series. Wow. It's disgraceful. It is. And I guess that's, you know, we were rubbishing Jimmy Anderson, but he was very economical. So that is where he did offer something, I guess, for the Poms. A couple of other things yeah. quickly. Now, with the Stuart Broad, forgot to talk about the Bales shenanigans where he moved the bales around and then got Manus out the very next ball. A great catch from Joe Root. I'm pretty sure it was that. A couple of really good catches in this match. Steve Smith had one. Uh, ben Stokes had one at the end of day... F no, when was it? Whenever it was. Day four? Anyway, but the other thing that we need to talk about is the catch that wasn't, Stewie. How funny was that? So Ben Stokes has thought he's taken the wicket of... Steve Smith, well, not he, Moeen Ali was bowling, but he thought he's got the catch that would dismiss Steve Smith. But in his celebration, it was a, a premature celebration, in his kind of ball throw up, he's dropped it. And of course, everyone's talking about the old uh, Herschel Gibbs. What do you make yeah. of that one? That was that was just so much schadenfreude there because you knew, you could just see the look on his face. He only reviewed because I think it was Stuart Broad convinced him to do so. But you could just see the cogs turning over in his head because... They wanted to maintain their moral high ground and their spirit of the game ashes. He couldn't in clear conscience claim that one because he knew he dropped it. Yeah. And look, it is disappointing that I guess that is part of the rules because he he did catch it quite cleanly, but obviously we know you've got to bring it to the ground and you've got to basically maintain the control. There was the Mitchell Stark in, I think it was the first test or first or the second. Where uh, he pretty sure it was the second. Yeah. Might've been the second. Yeah. Where he sort of grounded it before he sort of had full control of, of everything. So, yeah, look, it is what it is. And if you're going to celebrate like that, you've got to make sure your knee's out of the way. And, yeah, look, I, I think you're right. You could definitely see that he was wrestling with that one because he knew it was going to be given not out um, to the point where he was asking the umpire, oh, can we keep our review? Because we were checking to see if the ball was nicked, not so much that the catch was clean. So, yeah, he definitely, you could see that he knew that. And, I did see someone on Twitter or X or again, whatever we want to call it, <laughs> basically saying that that was the moment where I guess the whole winning's not the most important thing to us went completely out the window. Yeah, no, some nice justice there. So as we get to the end, Stewie, I think we'll quote our old friend Piers Morgan. So this is an article we wrote in The Sun. I'll take some quotes from it. 
And as the dust settles on this wondrous Ashes battle, I urge everyone to adopt a bit of baseball in your lives. Back yourself, be fearless, take risks, don't avoid them for fear of losing, never give up, keep pushing forward, and most importantly of all, enjoy your life. Now he goes on. Don't be one of those dreary dullards who sits in the safety of shadowy sidelines, content to lead a life of woeful mediocrity and constantly chuntering away about those who put their heads over the parapet and actually do something with themselves. And don't be a wokey who whines about absolutely everything, permanently plays the victim and blames everyone else for their own mistakes. Now, hold on. Wait, 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 wait. Wait, let me, before you go, before you go where I know you're going to go, he even contradicts himself okay. in the same article. So he says this before everything I've just quoted. England's thrilling win over Australia to level a series 2-2 that we were losing 2-0 at one stage and would have won had the rain not wrecked the third test match at Old Trafford when we had the Aussies 10 feet in the grave with a shovel in our hands. Wasn't just a moment for the ages in our country's sporting history. Mm. That's a real shame because if he'd stopped after the first full stop, I would have actually looked at it and gone, you know what? Very well said. It is pretty much the the best way that you can look at this series, given all the drama. And as per usual, he's had to go and fuck it all up by just continuing to talk. Yep. Well, but that bit was from earlier in the article. So he he says, don't be a whinger. When he was a whinger himself, you know, don't play the victim. When he was playing the victim himself. Oh, so So you've you've quoted it slightly out of order. Is that right? Yes, I did that intentionally. Sorry. Yes. Okay. Okay, yeah. now that makes more sense. Okay, that's probably a lot more true to character as well. So, yeah, it makes sense. You would have thought the editor might have gone, uh, given your first paragraph, mate, maybe... Uh, anyway. I, I would say this. The second bit, or in this the case that you read it, the first bit, absolutely spot on. And I, I wouldn't actually be surprised if we saw a couple more teams starting to kind of work their way a little bit more towards the basball approach. And I don't think people will go foot to the floor the way that England do all the time necessarily, but I certainly think it was a very entertaining series and, you know, seeing a lot more boundaries and the ball, I guess, not necessarily dominating the back quite as much as usual. I think there's, there's a lot to be said about it. No, fair call. Fair call. Very entertaining series. Not as good as 05, even though we lost that series, but uh, yeah, exceptional. Really enjoyed it. But I think that's the difference, though, Nath. We can look at a series that we lose and go, brilliant, absolutely yes. amazing. You know, the way that Freddie Flintoff and so many of the other English players... Simon Jones. Well, yeah, well, we won't get into that. But I still have nightmares, so, yeah. <laughs> so, so many of those English really stood up in that series and they took every punch that the Aussies gave them and I respect them to hell and back for winning that one. And I'm happy to put my hand up the same way as I have said in the past that one day international where we scored, what was it, 434 or something like that, and South Africa chased it down. That to me is the greatest one day international I've ever seen. The and Mick we lost. Lewis game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, I, I prefer to call it the AB de Villiers game. No, fair enough. Oh, no, yeah. no, sorry. My mistake. It was the Herschel Gibbs game. Ah, okay. With a score over 400, they would have had a few blokes gone all right. Oh, yeah. I, but I think I Herschel had what? Hashim Amla? Oh, okay. I, th- I thought oh, Hashim yeah. Amla might have... Yeah, anyway. No, Amla got them off to a good start as well. But um, but yeah, it was it was definitely Herschel Gibbs. I think he had 175, if I remember correctly. 175 off 111. Uh, yeah, we had... No, Herschel Gibbs was the only one to get a ton. Graham Smith had 90. That's the one. Ah, okay. Um, yeah. yeah, a couple yeah, of rebound scores. 50 from Mark Boucher and a 35 from Johan Vanderwath. So yeah, look, an incredible game. And as I said, we can kind of appreciate when we're on the losing side of 
some of the most ridiculous cricket you'll ever see. So I guess we look forward real quick. There's two and a half years till the next Dashes. In the last three series, Australia are 13-0 and here. I think the two teams will look quite different. I think the Aussie team might look a little bit more different than the English team. Hopefully Nathan Lyon's still around and he gets a nice 30-odd wickets. How good would that be to redeem? Well, not that he needs to redeem himself, but to make up for the fact he unfortunately got injured in this series. Yeah. And look, the thing is, by that stage, Todd Murphy will hopefully have played a few more tests as well. And you'd like to see, I guess, him potentially get a go. There may be options to play two spinners, depending on, I guess, how the SCG is going. But yes, we do have a few guys. I've seen players like Lance Morris being talked about in the bowling. I think you'll probably find that, that Cummins and Stark will definitely still be there. Hazelwood, I think, may not quite make it, but we'll see. And yeah, as you say, the top order will be completely different. No Warner, no Labashane. Smith will be very much on his last legs if he makes it as well. So, yeah, there's a, a there'll be a bit of turnover for the Aussies. Oh, I think Labashane will be around, but there won't be Smith. There won't be Warner. There probably won't be Kawaja. There won't be well, Mitch I mean, Marsh. Yeah. You've got to remember that Smith will be the same age as what, I guess, like roughly what Warner and Kawaja are now. I think there's every possibility that, that Marsh might still be there, depending on how he goes. But obviously, the big focus will be on making sure that Cameron Green is the the well and truly established all-rounder in the team. Yes, hopefully we can turn him into a bit of a Jacques Callis, albeit without opening. That would be impressive. So, Nath, I do have a couple of questions to do with, I guess, a bit of the fallout as well, though. Now, Pat Cummins as captain and Andrew McDonald as coach. What are your thoughts? Oh, well, like I said, we won the World Test Championship and we retained the Ashes. So I think Cummins was bowling hand grenades the first innings of that last test. He really came back well in that one after an average fourth test. I'm okay with retaining both. I think we should retain both. I think stability is a good thing. Chopping and changing too often is it. We've got a World Cup coming up. Let's stay stable. True. Yeah, no, it's, it's an interesting one. Obviously, there's been a lot of talk you know, from us as well about... I guess at times his inability to react particularly well, some of the tactics, you know, putting everyone out on the boundary at times. There, there were a few things where it was a bit iffy and I, I don't know. I, I look, I personally prefer the captain to be a batter, someone in the slips cordon ideally because they're right in the game rather than fielding 20, 30 meters from the bat. So I guess for me, Look, I do prefer the notion of Steve Smith being the captain again, but I understand people's, I guess, trepidation or, or you know, the slight worry about him going back into that role, especially given the fact that he's, what, 34 now. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I don't know if I like a, a fast bowler spearhead as your captain, but I don't think it'll be Smith either. It, who knows? It could be a young and to rise in the next two and a half, three years. I don't know. But yeah, interesting things ahead. And McDonald? Oh, again, he hasn't been in there very long. I think for stability's sake, you've got to give him at least the rest of the year. No, that's fair enough. Look, the I guess the downside for me is he does kind of seem a little bit more in that Darren Lehman role where he is a little bit more of a player's coach in terms of kind of goes along. He's one of the lads. Look, we haven't seen behind closed doors, so we don't know. I certainly think he's a long way off what Justin Langer was in terms of his approach, but yeah, I look at it, you're right. It's hard to kind of go past, right? We're world champions in that regard and we have retained the Ashes away. So yeah, it's a, it's a tricky one. I've seen behind closed doors a little bit on the uh, the test on Amazon. I can't wait for the next season of that. That's such good viewing and, and I'll probably rewatch it all as well. That's, that's fantastic. Interestingly about the tactics or the plans, Tim Payne said on Waitley today that he thought it was actually more the execution rather than the plans themselves. He thought the plans were okay. We just didn't execute them properly. So for what that's worth, that's interesting too. Well, that's, 
probably an element of truth to that. Um, the only other thing I did want to just talk about, and it's not as long-term a question as the next Ashes series, it's about Warner. We've spoken about the 28 and a half that he averaged in that series. If you look at it, he was only four behind Marnus Labuschagne and only nine behind Steve Smith. If you'd said that at the start of the series, you would have assumed that Warner would have probably averaged over 50. So certainly wasn't the only one that was a little bit down on what you would expect. And as I kept saying as well, he helped see off the new ball on a number of occasions, facing at least 50 to 70 balls. So he did his job. Yeah. My my question, though, is do you think that he should retain his spot for the upcoming summer? Uh, oh, I want. do we not have any away? Maybe we don't because of the World Cup. I, I haven't looked at the fixtures. I thought we might have a sneaky little away series prior to that. But, oh, look, I think he should be he should be in the mix. Uh, I don't think he should necessarily be a walk-up, but I definitely think he should be in the mix. And it depends on the conditions and all that sort of thing. Actually, no, that is the next test series, Nath. We've got a tour of South Africa for three T20s and five ODIs. We've got three T20s uh, in India. We've got three ODIs and five T20s also in India. And we've got 48 ODIs. No, not all of us, but that is the Cricket <laughs> World Cup in October, November. Oh, and then I we come wait. back for those, uh, yeah, those three tests in Australia. So the reason I bring that up is... We know that he struggles in England or certainly has done in recent times. My thoughts, though, are that if you look at the averages, he's 32 and a half for his career in terms of an average away from home. But you put him in Australia, his average balloons up to 58.4. Now, he's not the same player as he was in 2019, but we know he dominated Pakistan last time they came here. He had that ridiculous 335 not out. Do you think he maybe deserves it? Yeah, no, that's a good point. He's definitely better at home. So, yeah, I I think... I think as the incumbent, he should have first right of refusal, definitely. Okay. Now, just quickly in the cricket world. Now, we haven't really talked about the women's ash as much, which is not great of us. I got to watch a decent amount of that test. Australia did manage to reclaim those ashes, but not after some scares in the T20s and the uh, the the ODIs. But I just wanted to mention congratulations to the Mumbai Indians, New York. That's... Uh, about as American as beef vindaloo. Oh, no, no, sorry. About as American as apple pie, I believe, is the phrase. Anyway. About as, about as, about as American as Zutroy over here. Yes. Uh, Mumbai Indians. To be. <laughs> Another Simpsons reference. We've got a couple in today. Uh, Mumbai Indians, New York. Nicholas Purin smashed 137 not out of 55 balls to help them claim the title over Seattle. So well done to them. Oh, incredible. <laughs> love seeing those stats. You know we're numbers, guys. We love that sort of stuff. And uh, yeah, obviously as well, amazing effort by the Aussie women. Unfortunately, they did actually draw the series as well. I think it was eight points all, something like that in the end. Yeah, it was eight points all thanks to the extra weighting of the test. Because if you look at the uh, the win-loss, England actually won four and lost three. So yes, they'll actually claim yeah, yeah. another moral ashes. <laughs> that's right, infinity. Infi- yeah, that's infinity plus seven, basically. Stewie, you know what that music means. Time for some post-series beers. Ah, oh, where is everyone? Uh, maybe meet them in the nightclub knife. I think that's where they'll be. <laughs> yeah, how weird. It uh, was. It was a, a very, very a weird way to wrap up a somewhat weird series, I guess, in all. I Honestly, I'll double down on what I said before. I'm actually kind of glad it's over. It'll be nice to get to bed before midnight for once after the French Open, Wimbledon, and now this. So, yeah, just... Looking forward to a little bit of time off before the NBA restart and a few other bits and pieces. Don't know what I'll be watching, but we'll be talking again soon. Until next time, I'm Nate. And I'm Stu. We are the Sportplex.